We made this. Hello and welcome to Frame to Frame, part of the We Made This podcast network. We are the podcast that take two seemingly unconnected films and slam them together like the walls are closing in. I'm Andy Williams. And I'm Sean Wilson. And this week we are looking at Deep South Paranoia as represented in films. So we're going to be looking at Angel Heart and A Streetcar Named Desire. So these were two films that I had never seen. Um, You had always banged on to me about Angel Heart, um, mostly because I would mock Mickey Rourke. Uh, quite openly and um you said no you you absolutely have to watch angel heart um so we managed to to shoehorn it into a podcast haven't we yeah so for once you are the browbeaten one so um for once yeah sure. <laughs> um after i was goaded into watching joe's apartment and and various other things now i can flip the script um and turn it back on yourself hopefully with with better results um this was also I mean, tri- you can't deny joe's apartment was great well, I can, but well, we're not going to get into that. <laughs> um, so, I mean, this is also a trip down memory lane for me because I studied a streetcar named Desire to death in school, which would have been 2004, 2005. This is the first time I've watched the film, the Elia Kazan film, all the way through since then. So, um, and wow. um, yeah, it's and this. Yeah, Sean. I know, and, and, and you know, I'm, I'm going to to be self-deprecating here yes this to link it back to an earlier podcast this was during the days of my deathly dull teenage years when i endlessly went down to blockbuster with a group of friends <laughs> so i thought i'll i'll skewer myself there before you get to it okay <laughs> so, skewering you is not something that i'm allowed or able to do now um because of the lockdown in england um, yeah this is true yeah. <laughs> yeah so i'm staying well away uh, yeah, as, yeah. Uh, as somebody that is over the seven bridge uh, now smugly out of our firebreak. Um, yeah. So moving away from um, all things uh, political, which I'm sure nothing will will come up. No, uh, no, not at all. On this one, you, you never know. We might just be biding our time for to very make good political references. Um, yeah. But we're going to <laughs> stay on course, and we're going to start off with a streetcar named Desire. Um, so, given that you studied it to death, why don't you tell us the story? Oh, there's a, there's a question that my teachers always used to post. <laughs> I've gone straight back. <laughs> I've gone straight back in time. So, uh, well, given, yeah. Given the age disparity here, um, yeah. do you want me to try and like throw a ruler at you and shout Wilson and make you write on chalk and slate? Or? I mean, I, I didn't go to school in the 1940s. <laughs> I mean, they, they had just about outlawed everything like that since then. <laughs> Much as you'd be tempted to do it. <laughs> Um, yeah, so, yeah. um, Streetcar Named Desire. So, um, the Tennessee Williams, uh, Pulitzer Prize winning play from 1947, which was turned into, um, originally turned into sort of various productions on, uh, um, Broadway and then in London, uh, was then, uh, brought to this, the big screen in 1951 by Elia Kazan, who had, um, directed the, uh, Broadway production. Uh, this film amalgamated um, most of the cast from the Broadway production with one of the cast members from the London one. So from Broadway, you have Marlon Brando, Kim Hunter and Carl Malden. Uh, from London, you had uh, Vivian Lee. Bring bring all of these different um, actors together to do justice to what is one of the most incendiary and controversial uh, stage plays of um, all time, which really did... Um, as I learned in school, really broke down barriers at the start of the 20th century in terms of its depiction of sexuality, of homosexuality, of repressed memory, of identity, of madness. And Tennessee Williams is very, very famous for this. You think of things like uh, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, which has turned into a film with Paul Newman. Um, so really it, in sort of scorching, sort of very very dark very appropriately enough for the theme of this podcast very very claustrophobic story about um a faded southern belle aristocratic southern belle called blanche dubois who takes a uh, a streetcar named desire through new orleans to um the house of her sister stella who has run away from the family and who is shacked up with a um polish american a man called Stanley, and they are all <laughs> locked in this sweltering, sweaty New Orleans apartment, um, and everything starts to fracture and come apart at the seams. 
for various reasons, largely because you have the central conflict between Stan and Blanche, which is they are on opposite ends of the generational divide, of the wealth divide, of the class divide. Basically, they are completely ideologically different. She comes from old money. She is representing a way of life that is increasingly fading in the 20th century. He is kind of the, the sort of brutish, masculine, new in, embodiment of the working class. And together they centrally clash, in, first in relatively unstated, then in increasingly violent and, and disturbing ways. And I have to be honest, I'm going to ask you about this. So this was the first okay. time I, I watched the film all the way through since about 2004, as I said, when I studied it at school. And it's... It's a lot more brutal than I remember it being. Um, yeah. It's hard hitting. Would you agree with that? I would. So I'm, I'm glad you picked up on the sort of the sweatiness of it. Mm. Um, the you can I smell can't, it, can't you? You can practically yeah. smell the apartment. <laughs> the, so the claustrophobia for a start um, of their apartment it seemed to be getting smaller and smaller as time was going on, um, coupled with the the sweltering heat, the fact that. Um, the, the Stanley character played by Marlon Brando and the Mitch characters are both sort of drenched in sweat almost the entire time. Um, it really sort of brings it home. But um, yeah, I, I just found it quite shocking, actually. I was quite surprised by how shocking it was specifically. And I'm going to jump straight to the scene where there's the, the huge disagreement between Stanley and Blanche uh, towards the end of the film where um, Stanley has just returned home from um, his wife, Stella, going into labour and he's sort of taking a break because, you know, in those days, men needed to take break from a uh, woman going through labour. Yeah. So he goes home and then it's it's very heavily implied that he sexually assaults her. He, well, he does. I mean, it's it's in the play, he does. But they, ha- they had to tone it down because of the production the code restrictions of the time, yeah. yeah. But, like... Th- just getting that from the film, the way that they engage in their struggle and, and then the aftermath of that and the way that, that Blanche was treated subsequently, it was just astounding. I couldn't believe that I was watching a film from 1951. and I, I was just amazed by just even focusing in on, on that aspect of it. Um, that in particular surprised me. Um, but going even sort of slightly further back into the, the story, the relationship between the sisters I found particularly interesting because you obviously mentioned that we had um, Stanley and Blanche at sort of two opposite ends. And then you had Stella sort of slide in the scale between these two when you had, when she was having sort of solo dialogue scenes with, with Blanche, she was very much Blanche's sister. But then when she was with Stanley, she was Stanley's wife and she'd sort of put up with the, verbal and physical abuse that Stanley would give her and when she took refuge in is it Eunice's apartment upstairs mm, upstairs yeah um and then subsequently when you you hear the the moment of Brando shouting Stella Stella and she sort of returns downstairs and they embrace and you sort of think no why are you mm, doing it What's yeah wrong? you can sort yeah. of see that this this is a bad man a very toxic relationship which again is it was something I wasn't expecting from a film from 1951. It was, it was very, very. Sort of, it struck home a lot in in that sense. It seemed very of now, um, except I guess, like you say, the, there was the outdated, um, the outdated stereotype of the Southern Belle, which, uh, which Ooh. I guess doesn't exist so much anymore. But yeah, it was, it, it was fascinating, absolutely fascinating to watch. It was not an easy watch. Um, but it triggered all sorts sort of within me. And I'm, we're going to move on to it at some point, so we just as well bring it now. Two of possibly the greatest performances I've seen mm, yeah. in a single film ever. Well, um, before just before we address that, yeah, the whole Stella thing when she comes down to me, that's very interesting, isn't it? The idea that carnal desire and sexuality take precedence over logic, which is very, very ahead of its time for, for especially a in a woman. Then. Yeah, yeah, time. exactly. Yeah, um, represented from the female perspective as that because men yeah. were sort of seen as the the ferocious sexual creatures. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, for for Stella to have experienced that was again pretty groundbreaking for me yeah absolutely um and you that also ties into what we're now going to talk about with marlon brando who, who obviously along with vivian lee who plays blanche yeah mm-hmm. just two a, a really 
really pioneering performance from Marlon Brando. I read something very interesting, which is in the first scene between him and Blanche, which is the first time you see um, Stanley, he walks into the apartment. Blanche is very tentative and frightened, yet obviously curious and very attracted to him because, hey, it's Marlon Brando. I mean, you just look at him and you think, oh, what a what a fine specimen of a man. I mean, he's just kind of like jaw-dropping, really. Well, um, I, so I, I asked my wife, I, so I, she hadn't seen Marlon Brando in an old older film. She'd sort of only known him as the Godfather or mm-hmm. Jor-El or that sort of thing. So I, I, I said, do you know who that is? And she sort of looked at me and she wasn't quite sure. And I said, well, do you think he's a good looking man? She went, there's a touch of the James Franco about him. Mm. And, I'm like, and I said, I'm sure he'd love you for saying that. <laughs> That's pro- yeah. A cross between uh, Marlon Brando and... Uh, yeah. And, and James Dean seems to be what James Franco is going for. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, um, James Franco did play James Dean, didn't he, in a TV movie, I, I believe, before he was he in did. Spider-Man. But um, t- to go back to the, the initial scene between Stan and Blanche, I read something very interesting, which is that it was the first time or one of the first times in Hollywood that the the man, the man was the objectified object. The idea is that you're studying the man as an object of a sexual desire rather than the woman. Because in that in that scene, we've kind of almost sort of got the measure of Blanche. Obviously, she unravels yeah. across the course of the of the stage play and also the film. But Brando, at that point, erupts onto the scene with this naturalistic style of acting that he hated. He hated it being called method acting. He didn't like that. He said, but it was it was a new form of acting that so powerfully contrasts with Vivian Lee's much more studied Shakespearean mannered performance. And even well, now, telling of the tale, isn't it? It's telling of the, yeah. the the actual story of the film. It's mirrored in reality yeah, it, through the through the through the acting styles. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, even now, you look at you look at Marlon Brando's performance and the the naturalism of it, and just the smouldering nature of it is so lived in. I mean, clearly he played the role on stage, which apparently he wasn't very happy with. He wasn't very happy with his performance on the stage production, but it worked out, I think, a lot better in this. Um, and it's so it's so organic for want of a better word and i don't think audiences at that point in 1951 weren't used to that in films they weren't used to this i mean the, the physical details like the sweat on the back of his shirt and just the the, the physicality of it the way the it, shirt clings to him yes which, yeah i mean you could you could literally take a picture of him put him on a cardboard cutout and he'd be a top shop or a h&m model mm. do you know what i mean it's it's the, that's the style now um but looking back what 60 years ago that it's it's absurd it's, it's like people didn't dress like that in in those films those days and you know i i watched a, a Cary grant film recently from a similar time period and he's all buttoned up with a mm. shirt and tie yeah. and he's going off on a screwball adventure and that's not what brando's doing here what brando's doing is is absolutely moving the needle to 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 help influence the the likes of your robert de niro's and your jack nicholson's and your, the the people that came sort of later and, and really sort of honed method acting well, what he's also doing is he's representing he was rep, through through the medium of the character he was representing a rising generation of men that was showing how america was developing as a country the idea of this young working class immigrant experience that hadn't really been audiences hadn't really been exposed to that on the big screen before and this is the story of america that you're seeing now the 20th century american experience that of out with out with the faded southern aristocracy in with the new in the form of um stanley and well, Stanley addresses that directly, doesn't he? Yeah. He, he says specifically, you keep calling me Polish, but I'm not Polish. I'm an American. American, yeah, yeah. And it's, it's that that stigma that would come to define a lot of um, so-called immigrant or non-immigrant communities throughout the 20th century. And then he is completely um, baffled by the fact that Blanche has fled from the collapse of Belle Reve, the ancient aristocratic home. She's an English teacher and she's arrived here and he's very suspicious of her. And he's like, why has she got these fine furs and these sort of ropes of pearls. What is she, a deep sea diver? Like, what? where's she coming from? And that that sort of signals the, the darkness at, at the centre of the story. I mean, I must admit, having watched it again, I really learned to appreciate Vivian Lee's performance a lot more because mm-hmm. she is extraordinary in this, um, as extraordinary as Marlon Brando. Marlon Brando kind yeah. of eats up a lot of the publicity because that was the new kind of acting that blazed onto the screen. But she is heartbreaking 
in this. Yeah, she, she's, I mean, she has to give him the, the right platform to work off, acting yeah. and reacting at, at the end of the day. And she she's not just a blank slate of a woman that allows him to perform. She is a fully formed character in and of herself. And the, the great shame of it being that Vivian Lee suffered later on in mm. life with mental health issues and bipolar. And she she sort of got confused between her own life and Blanche's life and they sort of intertwined in her own mind and, and that sort of being the the great irony of it all uh, that, that she did end up in, in a very similar place to Blanche. I mean, it's just amazing that the, the variations in the vocal delivery in this, particularly later on in the scene prior to the prior to the sexual assault when she Blanche has um, really mentally collapsed, well, almost completely mentally collapsed. Stanley pushes her over the edge ultimately, but she's clad in all her ancient um sort of finery from this aristocratic background that's collapsed and the 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 vocal modulations the way that she at the beginning of the of the film at the beginning of the story she has this affected kind of flighty delivery and as things get worse that that tremor comes into the voice and the voice gets lower and it gets more and more anguish me you can see the shakespearean bearing on the performance but the scenes in which she is forced to recall the death of her um of the boy as she calls him um her yeah. her husband her, yeah. yeah um and whenever that's brought up she goes into a into a reverie um trance like state that she's yeah. she sort of clicks out of reality um i did find it interesting that there was a sort of a vague reference to to his homosexuality, her husband's mm, which homosexuality. Which is very, very downplayed in the film. I mean, the film did fall foul of, of the production codes. In in the play, that's more, um, ex- somewhat more explicit verbally. I mean, in, It sounds like it, I really need to see the play because the things yeah, I picked up on are things I mean, that are the, sort of hammered home in the play a bit more. The, the film is a very, very good adaptation of the play. I mean, also in the play, there is the character of um, Mitch, the Carl Malden character, does actually attempt to force himself on Blanche, which doesn't happen in the, in the film. Um, although up to that point, Mitch is probably the only relatively honourable character in, in the production. Then, you know, when that happens, it's like, oh, okay, everyone, everyone is... Febrile. Everyone is coming apart at the seams. Everyone is weak um, for various different reasons. Um, I mean, the one thing I want to address, and this is inevitable here, is the score by Alex North. I was going to ask which, you about this. <laughs> which is, you know, I was literally my, yeah, the next yeah, thing I was thinking yeah, of. Yeah. I'm going to team up for the score next. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, I'll team myself up. <laughs> Did I just use a golfing phrase, by the way? So, you did indeed, yeah. yeah, so yeah. The Masters this weekend. I'm yeah. very, very impressed with you. I have no idea what that means, but I'll take it as a good sign. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> um, where was I? Alex North, yeah. So, I mean, put simply, I'd put this in one it, the ten greatest scores of all time. It it, it would go in wow. there. I mean, it's it's astonishing for what it did. This was the first Hollywood film score that adopted a jazz idiom. It hadn't been done before because you think prior to 1951 film scores were largely occupied with European romanticism and classicism um, from the likes of Eric Wolfgang Korngold with the likes of Robin Hood and then Max Steiner with the likes of Gone with the Wind. Alex North brought a uniquely American idiom, jazz, to bear on a cinematic space and it was astonishing. And the the sultriness of it, the sweatiness, the seediness, the, the, the sort of percolating rhythms of it do such a remarkable job with the atmosphere of the um um with the atmosphere of the of the film but it also, also brings home the new orleans setting yeah me. it does it, it, yeah because because we spend pretty much all of our time in that apartment building um so whilst it's all sort of sweaty and seedy there's there's very little distinguishing it from being any other hot city in the world but i think like you say the score really places it within within Louisiana, within New Orleans. I mean, one of the things it does, one of the things Alex North was brilliant at was getting inside the heads of the characters. He wasn't just interested in just scoring the setting for its own sake. It was about, it's a story about people breaking down emotionally. And that's not something that you can necessarily, you know, it's not like a great big rift comes down the middle of the screen in order to act as a, as a, as a crass metaphor. I mean, you have to see it through the performances, but the music is there to draw it out even further. And it's no surprise that, 
this is another inevitable thing. Alex North was the mentor to Jerry Goldsmith, who's my favorite. I was favorite. about to say, where did Jerry Goldsmith <laughs> fit into all this? So Jerry Goldsmith derived inspiration from Alex North's principle that you don't score the scene, you score the emotion of the characters. And it's a very, very simple observation, but it's one that a lot of film composers actually foul up quite badly. Um, and it's it's no wonder that Jerry Goldsmith re-recorded um, Alex North's score for this in 1994. I think it was with the Royal Scottish National Orchestra. Um, but the the score fell foul of the production code as well. It's interesting when a score is compromised because the, the film the film <laughs> what, was apparently what rules were there on scores. I, I believe what happened was that the the, mo- the 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 score was so sultry and so sexy that they were, they were worried it was going to get people hot under the collar, and they actually had Alex North tone it down <laughs> to, to some extent because of the, the wow. sort of the bluesy jazzy nature of it. And there's there's an in, there's a quote I read from him which is that, yeah, the reason why at the end of the movie when Blanche is escorted out by the, by the psychiatric doctors and she says, oh, I've always depended on the kindness of strangers, there is a triumphal flourish in strings, which wasn't originally meant to happen because that's not meant to be a triumphal moment, but apparently the studio enforced that because it's like, no, we need, we need to give it that big classic Hollywood oh. melodramatic send-off, but that wasn't the idea that they were supposed to. <laughs> so... That's the thing. Now you say it, because obviously I've seen it once. Now you say it, that moment did stick out to me um, in that it wasn't being treated as sadly as I thought it could be. That, that's, I mean, that's a tear-jerking ending. If you, in a different world, that's a tear-jerking ending where you, you're pulling away your main character. You're basically being consigned to an asylum. Mm. And it's not being treated as that. So it's, it's interesting. Like I say, it, it didn't land for me at the moment and I didn't know why. And I guess that makes absolute sense now. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's very, it's very interesting. The fact that there are other compromises in the ending of the narrative itself. The fact that at the end of the film, Stella decides to not go back to Stanley at the end of the play. She does. It doesn't matter what he's done to Blanche. She goes back to him at the end of the play, which is just unfathomably bleak. And again, like you said about the toxicity of, relationships i mean talk about something that's very very relevant to now um it's modern day i mean the, the other the other element of the score that i wanted to bring up was the um the when she talks about her husband who who died um which was where it plays into the homophobic homosexual elements of the of the story um you get the incorporation of the the varsuviana polka that she she recalls she Later on. She hears on. Apparently, I've not seen yeah. the stage play being done live, but apparently that is that is done on the stage. She can the other the other characters can't hear it, but she can hear it, and you can hear her hearing it. Right. But the way the Varsuviana polka takes through Alex North's music takes you back to that very fateful moment. It's in a very ghostly, like eerie fashion, and it's incredibly sad. And you know that 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 part of the score, I think, is heartbreaking. And it contrasts very, very effectively with the jazzy onslaught that you hear in the main title sequence. And obviously that brilliant bit when Stan and Blanche meet for the first time, you've got that beautiful like saxophone solo that's just just sort of rocking away in the background. And it speaks of all that latent desire that, that's in that's at the centre of the story. It's, it's, it's remarkable music, but it's a remarkable film all around, I think. It's tough it really is. And it's really it's, it's a really sort of needle-moving film. And it feels like it, and it, it's it's not often that you watch that I watch these classics that I haven't seen, and don't feel somewhat let down. Mm. Um, on the first watch, especially, generally speaking, if I watch a classic, I sort of watch and go, right, okay, that was good, but I need to watch it again to to get all this hype around it. Um, but having watched uh, a streetcar named Desire just the once, going into it completely cold, I knew nothing of the narrative, despite having seen Blue Jasmine which is you know, the Woody Allen film that's very, very similar in retrospect. But I went into it completely cold and it just it landed for me and all of these different thematic elements sort of worked. And it's just a testament to, to great writing at the end of the day. It all comes back to, it's a very, very wordy film and it is at certain times very, very stagey. But it needs to be because the words are what we're all sort of in service of here. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you're talking about the greatest stage adaptations, I mean, this Glengarry, Glen Ross, probably a smattering of others. I think it makes a virtue of its staginess and its claustrophobia. The limited, the very, very limited environment is a character in and of itself. The apartment 
is it, it strikes right. to the paranoia. It strikes to yeah. the the exact or theme of this episode, which yeah. is we stay in this specific one place and I'm sure we can all attest to the fact that if you stay in one place for far too long, oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, it, <laughs> yeah. it does begin to, to sort of mess with your head a little bit. So, um... I mean, yeah. I mean, I suppose that is, that is true. The other, the other things I want to highlight is that Kim Hunter and Carl Molden are very, very good as Stella and Mitch. Cause I think they get overlooked um, yes. a lot. Kim Hunter has got a, a, quite a difficult role because as you said, it's a deliberately vacillating contradictory character. She, she basically is, at the dividing point between the old and the new between Blanche and Stanley, she's right on the cusp. Um, and it's ironic that at the end of the play, she goes back to him. And at the end of this one, she doesn't. And again, I mentioned that the studio executives wanted to give that triumphal, more optimistic ending that Tennessee Williams didn't give in the original um, play. But Carl Molden is Mitch as well, who, you know, is sees Blanche and is then turned against her through Stanley's machinations which is just incredibly tragic um, and brutal. I mean, they are fabulous. I mean, it's interesting actually that of all, all the actors, Bar Brando got Oscars. He didn't. He didn't get it. Um, Wasn't he nominated sort of four years on the bounce? And yeah, in his fourth year is is what he won. He got it. Was that for On the Waterfront or did he? I believe it was from On the Waterfront. Yeah, I'm not gonna which was, to nail my oh, colours to that match at this yeah. point. I think that that was Elia, the directed by Elia Kazan as well. So they were obviously very, very fine collaborators. But yeah, it's it's a really incendiary film. I mean, having watched it again, it's better, even better than I mean. I last watched, I mean, I was forced to watch it as like a seventeen-year-old teenager. I mean, you know, every any time at that age when you're forced to watch something against your will, it's kind of. Oh. You know, now I can appreciate yeah, it's it, odd, isn't it? Because I mean, I I studied uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, when I was in, in that age in school and going back to it years later you appreciate it so much more than you did at the time um, because they're clearly great texts you, you can't I mean I'm sure people can but you can't break text that is this good um, you can't break these words you can't, do you know what I mean there's, there's only so much you can do but to come come out with a film as good as this um, I was I was genuinely knocked for six by it it was uh it was an absolutely stunning film. So I'm glad that it came up as part of our, our sort of Deep South paranoia. Yeah. But moving on to our other one, which is the one that you've browbeaten me into watching, um, <laughs> was was Angel Heart. Um, so I'm, I'm surprised you didn't bring it up when we were looking at neo-noir films in the past. Um, I was quite surprised by that. But um, so it's written and directed by Alan Parker. And it tells the story of Harry Angel. People in, by the way, in this film, people have very filmic names. Mm. Um, Deliberately get, so. Mm. Well, yes, I'll get back to that. But um, he plays sort of a, a New York PI, and he's hired to solve the disappearance of a, a former jazz singer, Johnny Favorite. And his investigation sort of takes him down to New Orleans, and he sort of becomes sort of twisted in these these different murders. Uh, as he's sort of trying to figure out what's going on and, and exactly who Favourite is. Um, he's employed to do this by uh, the, the other wonderfully named Louis Cipher, uh, by, so played by Robert De Niro. And if the, the name isn't so much a red flag to you, then, I mean, you missed what I picked up on <laughs> from a very <laughs> did, early point. Did you get that quite quickly? Did you get that immediately? I did. I did not immediately, but um, on the second meeting for them, when they were meeting in the cafe, the completely empty cafe. Yes, yeah. Um, the, the egg scene. Um, I picked up on exactly who he was playing, mm. um, but I, I still didn't put two and two together because throughout the course of the film, you get these shots of um, just lifts going downwards and these the recurring. It's it's almost sort of German expressionism in the mm. use of shadows. Uh, you get shadows through bars and very sort of loud clanking steel noises. And I didn't quite grasp what was happening at that point until the, the, the final scene. Um, but Harry Angel played by my, by Mickey Rourke. And I have literally never seen Mickey Rourke better than this. Mm. Completely lost himself in the role. And it was, he was absolutely phenomenal. And the way he goes through, he's got touches of Blade Runner to it uh, in in sort of PI investigation world. And I just, I was completely blown away by by his performance. It was not quite at the same level as uh, A Streetcar Named Desire, 
but um, yeah, I think that, that Angel Heart did did land what it needed to. What are your thoughts on it? I think I think it's one of the finest psychological horror films of all time. It's it's deeply unsettling and deeply disturbing and brilliant for all that. I I, I mentioned to you that it's unsparing. It's an unsparing film. It's we should say it's based on the William Hortzberg um, novel Falling Angel. Um, which I haven't read. Um, I understand this is broadly faithful to it with, with some changes, but the, uh, Alan, I mean, we lost Alan Parker, the uh, director Alan Parker earlier this year, which is very, very sad because Alan Parker was an extraordinary filmmaker. You think of things like Bugsy Malone or Birdie or Mississippi Burning or Evita, Midnight Express. Midnight Express the com- I'm glad you the threw Evita in there. Yeah, yeah, Angela's exactly. Ashes. Angela's Ashes, yeah, exactly. I watched Angela's Ashes when the news came in. I hadn't seen Angela's Ashes for a long time, and I forgot how how um, downbeat that was. But mm-hmm. um, I mean, Alan Parker was one of those directors who relished embracing different genres. You could never quite tell what Alan Parker was going to do um, next, and I think he latched on to the nineteen fifties private eye slash Faustian tale in this really really well he seized it with open arms and this is the movie that's it's drenched in atmosphere right from the very very opening shot i love i love the collision between that 1950s gumshoe cliche and this slowly impending sense of dread with the shots of like ceiling fans and mysterious sort of cloaked figures rubbing like mysterious red stains out of walls which harry angel sees like what's that oh too late it's gone like there's this sense of impending catastrophe that comes through it um it's really creepy and even if you figure out what's going on and in hindsight it's one of those things that seems pretty obvious in hindsight if you don't get it but that that doesn't matter because mickey doesn't distract it really doesn't it it doesn't like i said i picked up on the 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 pun is is far too obvious the the louis lucifer yeah um that's far far too obvious but it it doesn't take it away because like i say it's in, again, in a very different way to to a streetcar named Desire, it is dripping. In especially when it gets down south, there is just sort of it's not quite sweat; it's more slime and blood and dirtiness. It's really sort of down in the the, the mud of everything, and it's uh, yeah. It, but I, we're, I'm sure we're going to come to the sex scene uh, at some point, so we yeah. may as well get it over with. Um, which is what she said, and. <laughs> I couldn't resist. <laughs> um, Pure and, smut. <laughs> well, that, that's yeah. what the sex scene really it is, is. Yeah, it was a hugely um, controversial scene as well. That was. Yeah, I'm not surprised yeah. because it's it's very on the nose with its dripping ceilings and its which then turns into blood. And, well, yeah, and it's yeah, yeah and well, it's we, shot of Mickey Rourke's butt. Um, <laughs> I mean, to put that into context, so when he gets down to New Orleans, what starts as a relatively straightforward, if a bit odd, um, missing persons investigation becomes increasingly weird with the suggestion of voodoo and ritualistic um, sacrifice. And and then Lisa Bonet comes into it as a character called Epiphany Proudfoot, which results in the sex yes, scene. Which, Epiphany Proudfoot. Epiphany Proudfoot, yeah. <laughs> so like you said, the names are very on the nose, but deliberately so. It's got a deliberately allegorical, unashamedly allegorical uh, kind of significance to it, which comes through in the character names and in the visual language and through the acting and the screenplay. But that scene, the lovemaking scene, did, did mean that the, the film fell foul of, of the senses, unsurprisingly, so and it also apparently got Lisa Bonet into trouble with Bill Cosby because she was then on the Bill Cosby show. It didn't get her kicked off it, but it got her but apparently with a verbal warning from from Bill Cosby. So well, allegedly, Bill Cosby is absolutely not the person you want no, to be on. No, ex- exactly. Let, let's see, yeah, take moral judgments from him. Um, um, so, isn't she playing a seventeen-year-old character in this film? I, I believe she is. Yeah. Which has, isn't Mickey Rourke playing like a fifty or forty-year-old PI? Sort of 30, 30, 40. I mean, let's face it. It's not. It's not supposed to be a comfortable scene, and you see the the the, the, the aftermath of it. It's like, oh God, that's bleak. Um, yeah, no, absolutely, but, it is. But that that's that's what I mean. I mean, even if my point earlier was, even if you work out the cut and thrust of what's going on, the the one of the pleasures of the film is watching Mickey Rourke play brilliantly, magnificently play a character who initially is so self assured. And mm-hmm. apparently in control of his own kind of hermetically sealed little world in, in New York. And then 
frantically coming apart at the seams as a result of this apparent conspiracy, whatever it is, that's sort of just plucking away at him, you know, like, like strings on a violin. And you, you see him becoming increasingly more frazzled. He knows that there's some kind of answer lurking out of sight. But he either doesn't he know what help himself, but to keep picking at it exactly. And he, it's like, is he, is he being willfully obtuse, or does he actually not know what's going on? As it turns out, it's the former. He is being willfully. I mean, we have to discuss basically the way that the story um, plays out. Obviously, we can't not do that. Um, no, exactly. It, anyone listening to these podcasts, I assume, has seen the films at this point. I mean, I, I hope so as well, because otherwise we've ruined a hell of a lot of stuff for people. So. Like, we should put a spoiler warning at the yeah, start. Yeah, we should. Of we should really. We? Yeah, it's a bit late now. Um, so, I mean, the whole um, the way that Alan Parker conjures this kind of overcooked, obviously, particularly when you get down to New Orleans. I mean, I've been to New Orleans, and it's a fascinating city. But particularly when you bolt that to this sort of archaic oldie worldy 1950s setting which is perversely alluring yet also very very menacing lots of like sort of the shots of the french quarter and it's all kind of weird and overhanging and creepy and very shadowy um, and then you throw the voodoo element into it and obviously <laughs> the voodoo stuff isn't particularly subtle because <laughs> i mean it's kind of like it's the, the full on, like, you know, we're going to kill chickens and drench ourselves in blood and everything. I mean, I don't know if actual voodoo practitioners would like would like it to be that crass, but it's just like... The film isn't subtle in any way, no. um, but it sort of benefits for that as well, because I think if the film was thematically subtle, then Mickey Rourke's and Robert De Niro's performances would be very out of kilter. Um, they would be they then sort of tip into arch territory whereas at the, as it stands they they're all sort of as one um it's interesting you said it was overcooked because um throughout the when the film was in new orleans i very much decided that i was going to cook gumbo the next day for, yes. for myself and my family and, and then, then you got and then you got to that decided scene. not to yeah, <laughs> I thought, you know what <laughs> Let's not do that. It's like, no, I, I don't want um, sort of deep fry Republican in my food. <laughs> um, so, yeah. But it's interesting it was... how the, the deaths were all foreshadowed. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you, you had your close up shot of the, the razor. You had the, the fact that, that Harry Angel specifically referenced the gumbo. Um, obviously, you saw the with the, the lovemaking scene, you saw him sort of on her throat. And they were all sort of foreshadowed. So when you went back at the end of the film, all you needed to see was those those single pieces of iconography to then it click into place and you go, right, I'm with you, I've got it. It's it's a brilliant visual representation of the classic thing, the unreliable narrator. Look, we're, we're seeing it through the main character's eyes and he is seeing what he wants to see until the critical moment at the end when Lou, Louis Cipher, Lucifer comes apparent and Robert De Niro manifests again. Robert De Niro in that brilliantly like, off-putting creepy performance with that long flowing hair and the long nails and and the cane um it's just fantastically he's like louis cipher lucifer even your name's a dime star joke oh mephistopheles is such a mouthful in manhattan johnny and such, such a great line well, you know there's uh, a character in cats called mephistopheles right yes i wish you hadn't <laughs> reminded me of that um yeah no, no I, I think you threw the, me off there. I know, I, I know. <laughs> yeah. But I think this having uh, a neo noir film from the 1980s, heavily influenced by the the films of the 50s. I think in it might just be me adding it on that the film was, or the score specifically, reminded me of Van Gelis's Blade Runner. Interesting. Do you not get that at all? Yeah, I mean, there are there are electronic elements. The score is by Trevor Jones, um, who's a fantastic composer. Really doesn't doesn't get enough movies to score now. Trevor Jones did fabulous scores. Think things like The Dark Crystal or, or Cliffhanger is a really good thematic writer, and I love the score for this film. Um, I do kind of get the Van Gelis thing. I mean, there is a lot of what it does is it's on that borderline between that bluesy, jazzy saxophone riff and these weird kind of metallic percussion sort of harsh synthetic elements which kick in during the moments of paranoia and you're not quite sure where the score is going to flip but also what the score does brilliantly is it meshes with the sound the sound design is just as important and i i recently did i wrote a um 
a feature which is yet to go live at the time that we record this for um uh, uh composer magazine um through spitfire audio and i i got some information off one of the sound designers of this film um eddie joseph um who worked on this film and he said that it was one of his career high points the way that he layered trevor jones's score with the sounds of sort of clanking elevator gates creaking ceiling fans hissing steam um and just the, the yeah the the air appropriately enough of paranoia is all encompassing everywhere um and i love the way that they the, the score becomes the score and the, and the sound effects become like kind of insistently nagging as if it's like pointing you towards something and you either don't know what it is or you don't want to admit what it is which helps because you get these flash you get these flash cuts to these quite disturbing sort of like maybe like dream sequences whatever you get like flashes of things you get like there's like a push in a distant shot that pushes in towards an apartment building in new york through which yeah. one of the windows you, you yeah, yeah. There's something horrible is happening behind you like what is that and you don't really know what the implications of that are towards the end it's like it's yeah, brilliantly done that, yeah it's it's i i was surprised how again in, in retrospect how influential this film seems to have been um i i can't imagine memento happened without this I can't imagine that, that this wasn't a direct influence. I think I think Christopher Nolan has cited this as an influence. I did I did read I did read an, an interview with him about that. Yeah, cool, excellent. I'm <laughs> glad we saw that one. <laughs> Next, just <'cause> it, <laughs> it just it it seemed to me very very reminiscent of it when I was watching it. And of, of course, we did um, we did Memento in a, a previous podcast. I think we did was it neo noir films of the early noughties? Yeah, and this is it's you can very clearly see the, the influence of this on those. And like I said, Alan Parker just doesn't seem to, to get the recognition he deserved uh, for, for the film is very, it, you can tell it's in control in some ways, but it, there are these scattershot images that you sort of question that at times. And it's, he directs it extremely well. And it's, it's very, very well edited in that respect is that again, he, he knows that he's perfectly in control of the story he wants to tell, but to you as an audience member going through that, it might appear a bit scattershot. Mm. Yeah, I was it, just I was quite taken by that. It seemed uh, it, it seemed that it'd been very meticulously planned to look slightly chaotic. Yeah, yeah, it was, it's very psychologically astute. That's why it's so scary. It so brilliantly puts you in the mind of Mickey Rourke's character through the editing, through the production design, through the music, through the sound design, but crucially the emotional impetus comes through mickey rourke's performance and it really makes you lament that not long after mickey rourke played made this film his career went downhill not you know not entirely accidentally it has to be honest i mean he made well, didn't, didn't he become a boxer he did because yeah, he, right. he basically thought that acting was kind of beneath him or wasn't worthy of him and then there began that very very long comeback line towards um the wrestler uh, in which you in the wrestler you were reminded of how good he was in Angel Heart. And he's, this was, he was this guy was a genuinely great actor, and Angel Heart had come off the back of things like Diner and, and Body Heat and Barfly. Mickey Rourke was pretty much unbeatable throughout the first half. Nine and a half weeks as well was that pre pre Angel Heart. Sort of same round, same time. I mean, whether that can be classed as great or not. I mean, it's got one of the great fridge scenes of all time. Um, I'll just, leave that one to you. <laughs> I'm not Last saying that as an expert. <laughs> um, I mean, it's, it's clearly better than than Harrison Ford's fridge scene in um, Indiana Jones and the King Kingdom of the Skull. Well, I mean, I I just I just love the the Hot Shots parody of the nine and a half weeks scene when he actually Charlie Sheen actually takes the sort of raw bacon out of the out of the fridge and th- through sheer carnal lust he puts it on her stomach and then it sizzles and it's automatically cooked and he pretty much does like a fried egg on her stomach as well hot shots is just brilliant so i didn't just... think we'd get a hot shots reference yeah exactly I'm, I'm quite impressed by that. <laughs> yeah, exactly um but mickey Rourke was just you know you kind of lament what happened to him really again you kind of lament it you kind of think well it was kind of his fault as well well, there was a quote um, from director Adrian Lin, who said that had Mickey Rourke died after the release of Angel Heart, he would be a bigger phenomenon than James mm, Dean. Mm, yeah. Which, I mean, you can kind of see. 
there's there's certain gaps in my knowledge of his film work from this era. But from what I have seen, I I can understand that. I can see why someone would think that. Absolutely, it's it means a remarkable performance. That final scene in which you realise that he he is basically living on as Robert De Niro says on borrowed time in another man's memories, and that he he has basically sold his soul to the devil, and the devil has now come back to collect. And this is what he's been almost deliberately blocking out throughout the entire movie, even as he's been herring around allegedly as Harry Angel. It's been somebody else in that body and the, the horrifying reckoning that you get, the delusion that the character has been facing, self-delusion. Mickey Rourke's acting is is remarkable. It's so anguished. He's like, I know who I am. And it's like, oh, God. And was it Robert De Niro says, he goes, the flesh is weak, Johnny. The soul is immortal and yours belongs to me. And it's like, oh, God, and you know there's no going back. I mean, how do you go back from that? You're being confronted with the devil. That's it. Yeah. It's just like, it's a, it's well, a Faustian tale. It's- I'm going to ask you about what I deem the film's misstep, which mm. is the final shot. Mm. Where you've got um, the the child of Epiphany Proudheart, uh, Proudfoot, rather. Yeah. Um, he looks at... Johnny slash Harry at this point and then the devil eyes appear and then there we go credits um what did you make of that that is a mistake I mean it happens with Robert De Niro's character as well when he says your soul belongs to me they do it with Robert De Niro as well I don't think that's necessary because the, the the atmosphere of the movie is menacing enough and it's made its point clearly enough I think something implicit rather than explicit would have been done. Now, I, I do agree that's a mistake, but it is redeemed by the shot after you see the child, which, lest, lest we forget, is Harry Angel's grandson, <laughs> yeah. So, which is incredibly, incredibly disturbing. He's basically sort of had sex with and then killed his own daughter without realising it, and then she has had her own son. That makes that sex seem even more problematic. It, it does, yeah, already, yeah. It? It's, which is what I mean by it's an unsparing film, but it is, it is redeemed by the very, very final shot of the movie of him going down in the elevator with, as you quite rightly said, that German impressionistic sort of array of, of lights and shadow, which is, you know, that's obviously been foreshadowed all the way through the movie. That's why you keep seeing these clanking lots elevator doors all the way through but he doesn't he either doesn't know it or doesn't want to admit it all the way through the film like what that means which is you know very upsetting um and doom laden it's a brilliant it really film is. it is and it's, it's odd that we've picked so so two such intense films to, to watch this week but uh yeah well just, yeah i mean just 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 to reiterate how the menace of robert de niro's performance well i mean robert de niro is just just great i mean he was in this kind of groove i think the same year he played he was in he was in this time period where he made very very interesting choices and i interesting is generally something that you can say to somebody when they're not doing particularly good work (laughs) and by that i don't mean we're we're not talking dirty grandpa here um perish of thought we're talking like brazil we're talking what we a year out from midnight run uh, Goodfellas is sort of around then. Um, when was uh, the Untouchables? Was the same King year the as, as it, it, that's a, a sort yeah. of five year difference. So you think of, of what De Niro had been doing around then. He yeah, was, he was just in this fascinating career part of his career, and um, he was at this point he was very much Robert De Niro, and he was very much in control of it, and he he hadn't tipped into to parody. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, even in the brilliantly creepy scene, he goes, you know, some religions believe the egg is the symbol of the soul. Did you know that? No, I didn't know that. Would you like an egg? No, just, thank you. Got to think about chickens. And he throws the salt over his <laughs> Oh, Yeah, the salt was the touch that, that I sort of picked up on and went, oh, that's interesting. And it was then that the wheels began to turn. Yeah. And then, uh, like you said, that shot of him actually eating the egg. And it seems yeah, so it was... obvious in hindsight that, that, that he, that's what he's doing to him like, steadily across the course of the movie. But at the time, you're just like, okay, this is just incredibly discombobulating. And I don't know it's why. It's creepy watching Robert De Niro eat an egg. But yeah. <laughs> and, you know, if anyone can make eating an egg interesting, peeling and eating an egg interesting, it's Robert De Niro. It's Robert De Niro in the yeah. 1980s. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um. But yeah, two very, very uh, 
I guess, downbeat films, very intense films, definitely. Mm. But what did you expect? The the theme for this week was Deep South Paranoia. Um, next week, we're going to be looking at probably two lighter-hearted films, I guess. Definitely one lighter-hearted film. Um, we're going to be looking at black and white films set on steamboats. So I'm really looking forward to this. <laughs> it's making me watch something that I've always intended to watch and never have. Um, so I'm really looking forward to that. Again, yeah. as normal, the films will be put on our social media page uh, on Friday, and we will sort of let you know what we're going to watch and hope that you watch them prior to, to listening to us, because as we've already mentioned, and you've just found out, we will spoil them. <laughs> Hopefully you've already seen these films. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry I mean, that's that. pretty much what Sean does anyway. That's that's why we don't review new films, because Sean will tell you the entire plot. <laughs> It's it's if it's if it's an outline, it's not a spoiler. Oh, I'm not getting into that. <laughs> it's just not getting into that. <laughs> it's clearly well worn path. Yeah, exactly. I've been down here so many times before. <laughs> I've been yelled at enough. <laughs> anyway, we are. That's why our most recent film from this episode was from what 1987. Yeah, so we can't be blamed. I can't be blamed specifically <laughs> for, for this. All right. So if you haven't watched Angel Heart, what have you been doing? So <laughs> well, this this now goes back to the conversations we had prior to me watching it. Yeah, yeah, but, exactly. Um, yeah, but yeah. So next week we're going to be be looking at um, black and white films set on steamboats. So I am looking forward to that one. Um, but until then, until next week, I'm Andy Williams, and I'm Sean Wilson. And please continue on listening to hear some of the other great podcasts on the We Made This podcast network. Bye bye. Elsewhere on We Made This. Cerebral jukebox. Yeah, because we we were talking about this. We've talked about the the different covers there are now. You yourself, I I thought I'd found a nice little sort of hidden gem here because you yourself were in a band called Bleeder or still are in a band called Bleeder. Yeah. And when I was looking on Spotify just for different covers of of the song, uh, I noticed there is a, a song a cover of this by a band called Bleeder. And I was like, oh, brilliant. This this is what Niall's not told me, is that he's, he's actually done a cover of it that got released. Shipwrecked and Comatose, a Red Dwarf podcast. Maybe I'm not coming at it from a an educated point of view because, you know, not only am I a man, I'm gay. You know, I, I don't deal with pregnancy. Are you? And, um... I, 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 have you ever told us that before? <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to make a serious point. Hey, we love you, you know that. Yeah. But yeah, you have got a good point, Colin. This is a bit of a sausage fest episode. We, maybe we should have got a lady involved. Real Asian Podcast. You know, so I, I really do feel that there's there's this, um, and whether it's an invisible weight on our shoulders to be able to be yeah. like this ideal child or like you know uh, just being able to not drag the family name down for whatever reason even right. if it's self-imposed even if it's just completely made up in your mind right like like you know brian you were just saying about your friend who who said they felt like they didn't they couldn't come out to you check out all of these shows and more on the we made this podcast network <laughs>